Matt, and if you're just joining us, uh, we're in the middle of a series called Deeper, and we're talking about uh, looking at scripture, the life of Jesus, exploring emotional health, and one of the things we keep saying is that our emotional health and our spiritual health are linked, that your spiritual maturity will never outpace your emotional maturity. Um, that said, we recognize that you know, some of this stuff has been kind of hard. I don't know if anybody else this has stirred up difficult emotions or maybe, maybe things from your past. And I just want to say we, we are aware of that. Part of that is, of course, by design. Um, and I just want to encourage you, if that's you, to maybe to sit with that uh, a little bit longer than maybe you want to. Um, don't ignore it. Don't escape. I mean, the idea that we could hear a sermon on, for example, dealing with your past, like a sermon, and then maybe do a little bit of work in our participants' guide and then be like, all right, I've dealt with my past. It's all done. Um, it doesn't work like that. And so the good news is that God is with us and that we can trust him to give us our next step when we're ready. This is not an overnight process, and the goal is progress, not perfection. So just want to encourage you to keep giving God access to those deeper parts of you, that he's got you, and he's with you in this. So all of that said, um, this week I, I hope is a little bit of a break, not that it's going to be easy, so to speak, but hopefully it's a little bit, uh, I guess, less heavy than the last few weeks. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 1 going to walk through a few places here in the beginning of John. And this can be a little bit confusing because the Apostle John, the guy who's writing this gospel, his biography of Jesus, right away starts talking about another John named John the Baptist. And so uh, that's kind of the backdrop of what's going on, starting in verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So you have these religious leaders in Jerusalem who send this investigative crew basically out into the wilderness, the middle of nowhere, uh, to where John the Baptist is. And they want to find out what's happening, what's going on, and look into these rumors that they've heard about John. Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So apparently the first question that they ask John the Baptist is, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Um, and John is quite clear on that. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Verse 21, they asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? Just a word here on their question. For centuries, the Jews had read in their own scriptures that the great prophet Elijah would return someday, essentially right before the Messiah. And in case you forgot, Elijah in the Old Testament, he doesn't die like everyone else. Instead, he's taken directly up into heaven. And so many believe that Elijah's return, it would be like the, the kickoff, the prelude to God's new day. So are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Again, in their scriptures, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, God promises that he will raise up a leader like Moses, to lead the people. And so this 
yet to come kind of person like Moses. This guy's expected right up to the time of Jesus. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Guess again. Verse 22, finally they said, okay, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I think they're kind of doing that thing that interviewers do when they're interviewing politicians. Are you going to run for office? And they're like, haven't even thought about it, never even crossed my mind. And then the very next thing they do is announce that they're running for office. Only here, John never changes the story. He just says, I have zero personal ambitions like that. Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. So this next line is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So John says, I'm the guy that the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before uh, was writing about. My job is to get Israel ready for the Messiah. He just says, I'm the voice. I'm like the hype guy. I'm here to announce the Messiah when he shows up. Look, I'm in the wilderness and everything. And that's exactly what John does. He's out along the way. He's baptizing people as his central symbolic action. And I'll say more about that in a second. Skip down to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And they're like, After you, before, what, what's, huh? And John's like, Never mind, there he is. Look at verse 34. John says, Pointing at Jesus, at Jesus, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. What's John doing here? For one, he's doing exactly his job because his calling from God is to get people ready for the Messiah. Now, along the way, uh, in fulfilling his own calling, John also happens to grow quite successful in his own right. In fact, the writer Mark says that when John showed up in the wilderness, it says, the whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him to be baptized by John. So the masses are being drawn out to John the Baptist, so much so that that's why the religious leaders sent a little crew to find out what's going on. This grassroots movement out in the middle of the wilderness has suddenly grown and exploded by this point. Now look what happens next in verse uh, 35. The next day... John was there again with two of his disciples. So John is this popular, although a little bit unconventional. He's this rabbi, this leader figure with a strange diet. But apparently, John also has his own disciples. He has his inner circle of people beyond just the crowds. Verse 36, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God, when the two disciples, these are John's disciples, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, which is awesome. I mean, that's good, right? They actually get what John's trying, them, trying to get them to understand. This is exactly what John has been preparing them for. And the language that's used here when it says that they follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that these two disciples of John 
went over and hung out with Jesus for a couple hours. You could easily translate this, they became Jesus' disciples. They became followers of Jesus. So you have these two disciples who, when they see Jesus, they abandon John on the spot. John, thanks for everything, but we're going with him now. I don't know for sure, um, but I'm just kind of curious how that felt for John. You think about that emotionally, um, that that could have perhaps stung a little bit. I know, we're very, we're very pious here, and John, we would say John's just doing his job. It's about Jesus. It's not about him. Yes. In fact, John probably even knew this day was coming. But that doesn't take away from the fact that John is human, that things are changing very quickly around him. I think it'd be perfectly natural for, for John to have some mixed feelings in this moment. He's watching his own disciples move on for someone greater. Turn over a few chapters to John uh, chapter 3, John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Now, notice that now... John and Jesus are both baptizing people. At first, it was just John the Baptist, that's how he got his name, doing the baptizing. Now, I don't have time to explain this in depth, but very clearly, this is not just like a, this isn't a Christian thing at this point. Do you know why? Because there are no Christians. Uh, there's no, there are no churches. So this baptism that they're both doing, it has to have had a meaning that made sense to them at the time. Think of this baptism that John and Jesus are doing. Think of it as a symbolic way, kind of a public way for people to identify with their message, with this announcement that the kingdom of God is, is near, that God is getting ready to do something new, concrete, and tangible. And so people are getting baptized by John, by Jesus, as simply a way to say, I'm in. I want to be a part of this kingdom. Uh, count me in. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And scholars say we have no idea why this story's here or we kind of lost some of the details. But here's the point in verse 26. They, that's John's remaining disciples, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Notice at first, just a few of John's disciples leave John for Jesus. But then, not long after that, it seems like everyone, the crowd, the masses, suddenly abandon John for Jesus. And John's remaining disciples are watching all of this happen, and they're going, John, you did a good job doing what you're supposed to do and all that, but what gives him the right? Notice they don't even call him by his name. They say, that man. That man is doing this. He's out baptizing just like you. I mean, look at him. He, he got here like, what, five minutes ago? And now he's doing your work. John, you started this whole thing. 
It was your idea to begin with. And now Jesus is acting like he can just show up and do that, his own thing, independently over there. And now everyone's leaving us for him. Now, you would think that that would make John distraught, I don't know, sad. I mean, how easily could John in this moment have gone, you know what, you're right. He wouldn't be anything without me, without my public endorsement of him. But that's not at all what John does. Verse 27, to this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Okay, how healthy and grown up is that? Yeah, it's almost like John is like a mature person or something. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So just to recap, John the Baptist is basically the hot show in town. He's got everyone talking, everyone taking note, even the high-ups. His job is to get Israel ready for the coming of the Messiah, which also means when the Messiah comes, John is essentially out of a job. But notice he's not bitter or stressed out or angry or insecure or jealous or depressed by this. And when John's own remaining followers in an attempt to defend their master, when they try to get John all stirred up about this, John just goes, no, no, no. A person can receive only what's given them from heaven. In fact, I'm full of joy. What an honor to be a part of this moment in history. I'll gladly take a lesser role. I'll gladly step out of the spotlight. I'll joyfully become smaller so that he can become greater. As Jesus continues his work, uh, this is exactly what happens. John very quickly fades totally into the background. He ends up in prison and out of the picture. Jesus goes on to eclipse John the Baptist in pretty much every way. Yet, even as that is starting to happen, John is still able to celebrate that Jesus is more successful or whatever than he is. What about you? Are you able to celebrate when someone around you is more successful? Uh, or gets more credit? Or is more gifted or talented or gets the opportunity that you didn't get? Life is often not very fair. What am I, your parents? We're not all given the same stuff. Um, maybe this dates me, but remember being a kid and going to school on your very first day with your brand new pack of like eight pack crayons? And you were feeling so good. They're brand new in your mind. You had all the colors that you could possibly need to be the next Picasso or whatever. 
It never failed. It never failed that some kid in your class would show up with the 64 pack of crayons with the built-in sharpener, yes. And they had all these exotic colors that you have ne- you never heard of. You have, in your eight pack, you have boring old purple. They've got like purple mountains majesty or something. I don't know, but it was awesome. And it just, it never occurred to you until this moment how artistically limited you were, in fact, without a white crayon. How unfair. I went home and I, I begged my parents, I protested, um, and they never told me this because it would be inappropriate to tell a first grader, but they never said, Matt, you might as well get used to it, Right? <laughs> Life isn't fair. In fact, Matt, you are an eight-pack-of-crayons eight kind of person. That would, that would be a little bit harsh. Uh, but it does describe how life often is. You look at how other people are gifted in ways that you aren't. Talents, athletic ability, appearance, or they come from a great family, or they have a really charismatic personality that other people are just drawn to, and you work just as hard. You're just as committed to to doing your job well or whatever, and yet they seem to experience almost over effortless success. Some people seem to have been given more than others. This is very hard for us to accept. (laughs) Um, When my kids were little, this happened especially then when they played sports, uh, you know the thing where everyone gets a trophy uh, for participating? It's like, you played soccer. Congratulations. You know, here's your trophy. And I know we don't want anyone to feel bad and to feel like they're not as good as someone else on the team. And we don't want them to feel that their value on the team is merit-based. We want everybody's equal and all that. I kind of think, though, as grown-ups, that says a little bit more about us and what we want the world to be like. Um, The problem is we grow up and we get jobs, and um, I hope you know this, but sometimes work is (laughs) merit-based. Everybody's like, what? Uh, Like, you you don't get a trophy for just like, I was there, I clocked in, I sat in that chair the whole time. Um, In real life, though, um, what we find is that effort ends up being only part of the equation. There are other factors, sometimes outside of your control. How many of you know someone who is um, not as smart as you, and yet they're unbelievably successful? What is that? I know a few people where, again, I'm not like the smartest person or whatever, but like I'm smarter than they are, for sure. And I work just as hard, and I think to myself, I look at their phenomenal success, and I go... If they were any smarter, they would know that you shouldn't do that, right? They're just, you get it. Uh, And I want to ask, who's deciding this stuff? Some people are given more than others. We don't all have the same gifts or opportunities. Jesus tells the parable of the talents where the person one gets one bag of money, resources, opportunity, the other person gets two, the other person gets five, and... I just want to say that's not fair at all. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's a bummer, isn't it? 
And in the parable, the point is that each person is responsible, in fact, held accountable even for what they've done with what they've been given. That's true of each one of us in this room. And we hate that. I don't want to think about the two or three bags that I've been given. I'm like, I'm hung up on why does that guy get five to begin with? I don't want to pick on social media here too much because there's good, helpful things that come from it and all that. It can also create this perfect storm because you start out with unrealistic expectations for who you'll become and maybe you're going to become exactly who you're imagining, but it will almost definitely take longer than you thought uh, to get there. I heard someone say, how often do we compare our chapter 2 with someone else's chapter 22? When you add to that, you know, you hear these stories of phenomenal early success, this very small percentage of people who are wildly successful at a young age, and we blast that out to the world like it's normal. And then we curate an image of ourselves that's not based on reality. Our social media feed, yours, mine, everyone's, is your highlight real? The lighting is right. Uh, everyone's happy, the location is unique. What I'm saying is it's, it's never the gas station bathroom. And along the way, with or without technology, we're robbed of our, our joy. Um, with that comes insecurity. I, I'm insecure about my body, my face, my sense of fashion, my job, my status, my personality, which then leads to disappointment my job's not good enough, my lifestyle, my, my story isn't good enough, I'll never be good enough. And then instead of gratitude, instead of contentment and joy, we end up feeling entitled, maybe even jealous, like why him? Why her? Perhaps we experience some sadness, we live with this nagging sense of it's never enough. Going back to John, notice he was able to celebrate, to celebrate Jesus' surge in popularity as John's own followers left him for Jesus. And then eventually everyone left him, which means his, his job is over. His moment in the spotlight is in the past. And yet John is at peace. He uses the word, he uses the word joy even to describe the, this unfolding of events as great as that was for the world also had implications for his status, for his role going forward. I would argue that Jesus was able, or John was able to do this uh, because he knew three things. He knew his identity, he knew his calling, and I want to focus mostly on he knew his limitations. So just briefly, the first two, he knew his identity. He said, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. John knew who he was. I'm the voice. I'm the wilderness guy. John, are you the Messiah? Because that would be exciting for like everyone. Nope. Okay, John, how about this? Are you the prophet? Uh, we'll settle for that. Nope. Sorry to let you down. John knew who he was. Equally important, he knew who he wasn't. He knew who God created him to be. And part of that, of course, is rooted in Scripture but also in himself. He had wrestled with God. He knew 
who God created him to be. And so all of this means that that when other people tried to pressure John to be someone else, to live out of a different identity, John was able to say no. This is huge for us. This is huge because so often we don't live out of this and we end up kind of spinning our wheels trying to be someone we're not. Um, This temptation hits each one of us differently. Some of us in the room who are introverts, we are tempted to to be more extroverted, for example, than we are. We go to the party and we don't want to be there and it's like, yeah, hey, hey, hey. And really, if we're honest, it's exhausting and we'd rather be alone among the trees of the forest. Some of us feel pressure to be beautiful, put together 24-7. We feel like we always have to be the expert in the room or whatever it is. It'll be different for everyone. But we waste so much, waste so much emotional energy trying to be someone we're not. Think of David in the Old Testament. And he's a young man getting ready to go out and fight Goliath on behalf of the nation. So he's fighting for the low, low stakes of the fate of the entire country. And King Saul, you remember, loads David up with all of King Saul's heavy armor. And David's stumbling around the room, weighed down. He's awkward, uncomfortable. Until he finally says, and think about the courage that this would have taken. I can't do this. I can't do this. This isn't who I am. He takes off the armor. John knew his identity. Secondly, John knew his calling. Because he knew who he was, that helped him discern what he was supposed to do. He said, my job is to prepare, to lead the way, to get people ready for the Messiah. Many of us spend a lot of time and energy on this, trying to figure out what are we supposed to do with our lives? Uh, What's God calling me to do? And this can be frustrating at times, and I would argue, by the way, this is not something that you do one time when you're 18 or 25 or whatever, that life circumstances, that uh, life experiences can bring us back again and again to this important question. Uh, For me, the the way that I think about this is um, you don't do this work sitting in a room by yourself with a blank piece of paper. I'm going to figure it all out, that this is something that happens. You discover this as you live, as you go about life, and you do some things, and you come alive. And there are other things that you do, and it's like you kind of wither up. Um, You do certain things, and people are like, that. You should do more of that. And then you do other things, and people are like, how about you don't do that anymore? (laughs) The key is, it comes out of this. Who has God made you? And if I'm okay with this, suddenly I get a lot more clarity about, okay, what I'm supposed to be doing. Not what sounds good or cool, not what other people want me to do. Sometimes this means that we have to grieve the reality that we can't always do what we want, that we have to grieve the death of a dream in order to move to a new dream with joy. Um, But John knew his calling, he knew his identity. And then here's the one I want to focus on. John knew his limits. He says a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. All I can be is myself. All I can do is what God has shaped me to do. 
there are some things that you can do really well. I mean, each person here, you have things that come naturally for you. Paul writes in Romans 12, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. We each have gifts. We each have opportunities we've been graced with. They don't come from us. They come from God. There are other things that you're not very good at that aren't your gifts. Some roles we flourish in. We come alive. When you're doing those things, it's like, man, I'm on the edge of my seat. We're engaged. We wake up and go, I can't believe I get to do this. Other roles, not so much. John knew his limits. No, I'm not the Messiah. Sorry to disappoint you. John, everyone's leaving to go with Jesus. Right. My work here is done. I've taken this as far as I can. I'm not here to be and do everything myself. You think about the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember how they wanted to, well, they did, eat from the fruit of the tree that God had commanded them not to? Why did they do this? Because of false promise, if we do this, we will become like God, they believed. How often do we deny our God-given limits in an attempt to do the same? Of course, God is the only one who is omnipresent, right? Meaning present everywhere at the same time. Only God is omnipresent. That doesn't stop us from trying. Yeah, sure, I can make it. I'll be there. I can be everywhere at once. Uh, Only God is omnipotent, all-powerful. What do we do? Yeah, I can fix that. I can do, I have limitless resources. I'll commit, I'll say yes, I'll squeeze that in over here. Yes, 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 I'll figure it out somehow. And no wonder we end up frazzled and burned out and joyless. You think about Jesus, who was the embodiment of God. Even Jesus had limitations. For starters, he was human, which means he was no longer all the omni words. He got tired, hungry. He could only be in one place at one time. He asked questions, meaning he didn't like know everything. He was surrounded by a flood of need, by desperate people around him all the time. He said no all the time. He did not heal every sick person in the hospital. He did not build a great church in Capernaum even when people begged him to stay. Jesus did not run after the crowds when they uh, defected after he gave a difficult teaching. Jesus did not go in person to meet the needs of of everybody in Europe and Africa and uh, the Americas, Asia. Jesus accepted his identity. I'm the Messiah. He accepted his calling. My purpose is to usher in the kingdom of God through my life, my death, and my resurrection. And he accepted his limitations. Do you realize there's only so much he could do in three years? That when he left, he left with plenty of unmet need. And yet he prayed at the end of his life. Imagine this. Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. How often do we have that sense within us? So we need to see both, we need to see both our capacity and our limitations as a sign of what God's up to in our lives. Um, Peter Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Church, he lists some really helpful limitations 
that we need to recognize, that we need to discern in our lives. He, for example, gives uh, your personality is a limitation. For me, I could never, you know how everybody says you can be whatever you want when you grow up and be the president? No, you can't. You can't. And, and we shouldn't, I could never be many things based on how, how I'm wired. I could never run for office. My skin is like way too thin for that. Um, I'm not a good administrator. Thankfully, we have Jeremy uh, handling that around here. I, my personality, I like, I love ideas. Now, implementation is something else. Um, so you need to look at your personality. This is a big, big clue on, on who you are and, and what God's calling you to do. You also need to look at your season of life. If you are here and you have young kids, enough said. Um, if you have elderly parents in need of care, if you're in a season of preparation for the future, school, grad school, uh, starting a business, our season of life is a limitation. You need to look at your life situation. If you are single, that's a limitation. If you're married, that's a limitation. A lot of things you can't do. I heard someone say that um, take your amount of free time, and if you get married, cut that in half. And then if you have kids, cut that in half again. I think that sounds about right. Um, it could be you're dealing with an illness in this particular uh, life or season that you're in or recovering from something. And then lastly, you need to look at your emotional and physical capacities. How much can you do and stay healthy? So, are we all given the same? No. Some of you have a large plate. Like you, I mean, I look at you and I'm like, wow, you can handle a lot. Others of us have a little tiny, like a pizza king, a pizza king plate. And it doesn't take very much. We're like, ah, I'm so stressed out. Um, we all have small capacity for certain things. Again, for me, it's meetings. If you want to kill me, invite me to do event planning. No, I can't do it. It just drains the life out of me. And then we have other things where we have like a larger capacity. For me, it's, um, it's, it's study, it's taking in information. Uh, a lot of this is like working alone. Um, but what I have found in all of this, and maybe, maybe this is true of you, maybe not, I can do less than I think I can. Like, I need more sleep, for example, than any other adult I've ever met. I'm jealous of babies all the time. They get to sleep whenever they want. Um, I have unrealistic, uh, unrealistic sense of like the future and what I can accomplish. And in fact, the farther out in the future is something that you ask me to do, the more likely I'll say yes, because it's the future. Who cares, right? And uh, I, I heard Jimmy Kimmel joke one time that he's like, I'll agree to cut my own thumb off if it's three months from now. Just put it on the calendar, right? It's just, I have a hard time. Nobody else has that problem. Okay. Um, you need to look at your emotional and physical capacities and be honest about that. We all have limits. And here's what we're invited to do. In light of this reality, we are invited to receive the gift of limits. 
How many of you know it doesn't always feel like a gift? Yeah. But there's a lot of freedom in saying, God, this is who you've made me to be. This is what you're calling me to do. This is where I come alive. And over here, uh, I can say no. Over here, this is not what you're asking me to do. Many of us don't receive our limits. We fight them tooth and nail, or we deny them, or we try to push past them and pretend that they don't exist. The challenge for all of us is to fully live in to the capacity that God's given us. And we, none of us want to sell ourselves short. We all want to like live up to who God's created us to be. We want to pursue our calling. But to do that well, to do that faithfully, means that we need to live within, inside of our God-given limitations. Perhaps for you, this means doing a bit of inventory in your life. Are there areas in your life where you feel you're just burned out, overwhelmed, constantly stressed out? Um, for me, I, I kind of try to monitor, like, how do I respond when an unexpected inconvenience pops up? That's a big-time clue as to how much margin I have. Yesterday, I was coming here in the morning just to do these slides, and I was like, I'm going to be here for half an hour, and then I'm done, and I get here and forgot my keys. And I, I was actually proud of myself because in that moment, I was like, you know what? Not a big deal. Drive home, enjoy the sunshine, listen to the radio, come back. I mean, that could have gone very differently, right? That's a clue when, when we're stressed out, how we handle that. Do you always feel like there's too much to do and too little time? Do you always feel restless in your interior? It's asking, why does my life have so little margin or flexibility? Why do I never feel finished meeting needs? <sighs> yeah, I, I couldn't read my writing, but um, <laughs> that, <laughs> like that meme that says, uh, being an adult is saying, my life will get better when this season ends. And you just keep saying that over and over until you die. Am I being faithful to my God-given talents, my unique story, my weaknesses? I like how Scazzaro puts it. Maturity in life is when someone is living joyfully within their God-given limits. So how do we get there? For starters, and we're going to practice this right now, I'm going to give you a word, and it's going to be very difficult for you to say, but I want you to repeat it after me, okay? No. <laughs> How was that? It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. To say no to really good things. Hey, will you do this? No. Hey, are you the Messiah? No. Instead of, are you the Messiah? Yeah. Can you go there? Can you do this? Sure. We have to learn the art of saying no. Uh, Parker Palmer says, and I like this, uh, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer to others. Anytime we can listen to, to true self, meaning who God's made us to be, and give it the care it requires, we do so not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. Who are you? Some of us know immediately. Others of us maybe aren't so sure. 
How can you live more into who God has made you to be? This takes time. This doesn't happen overnight. What are you called to do? What are you meant to say yes to? What happens if we don't think about this is we, we, we end up saying yes to all kinds of other things and then by default don't have room to think of this. What are you not called to? What do you need to say no to? A person can only receive what they've been given from heaven. And three, what are your limitations? Is there any area of your life right now where you're living, you're, you're exceeding them? You're going too fast. You're trying to do too much. There's a part of you, um, and you're not living within the limits God's given you. Where is there unhealth in your life right now because you have trouble saying no? Would you stand with me and we'll pray? We also have some folks here who are going to come up and uh, just be available for prayer. And so when I'm done praying and, and you'll be dismissed, um, if you're here and you need, maybe from this, you need some wisdom, you're making a decision, you need some clarity, some discernment in your life, um, these folks up here would love to pray with you. Uh, it could be something else. James says, very simply in Scripture, if, if anyone's sick, come to the leaders and, and ask them to pray for you. And so part of what we want to do around here, and this is kind of a, a, a newer thing, is just make space at, at the end of services on a regular basis. If you have a need in your life and you'd like someone to pray with you, like right now beyond the, hey, I'll be praying for you thing we do, but to actually receive prayer in this moment, um, these folks are, will be up here for that. So, And it, it's free. <laughs> it's, it's totally free. So uh, would you pray with me and then uh, you'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that your peace would settle over each of our hearts right now. Lord, the ways, the places in our lives where even thinking about uh, having healthy boundaries and limits, where that just, it, we already feel stressed, and we don't know how we're going to do it, and we have all, all kinds of reasons. Would you just give us your peace, um, that you would help us in, in the core of our being to be settled, to know who you've made us to be to have more clarity on what you're calling us to do. And so, Lord, help us to know what to say no to and to be okay with not getting everything done, to be okay, like Jesus, with disappointing other people so that we can say yes to the one thing. We can say yes to the, the, the better things that you have for us. Lord, help us to have margin, help us to have flexibility and space um, just to go about our day, to go about our week with eyes open, seeing people the way that you want us to see them, the way that you do, with hearts just ready to respond with what you're asking us to do um, in that moment. It's in Jesus' name we pray.